Our stories, podcasts, dreams, and all the things that we hope to do are right now being supported by patrons like you. Thank you so much to Caitlin R. for being a patron and supporting us in our endeavors. Right now, we're just $10 a month away from our first phantom goal. So please head over to patreon.com slash mocopress, check out the rewards, and become a backer if you like what we do. Thanks. Hello and welcome. I'm Robin Childs. I'm Corey Childs. And I'm Matt Parker. Together we form the Moco Expedition, three good friends exploring the mysteries of storytelling craft. Sometimes on your journey as a writer, you encounter questions that sit in the back of your mind and seem to have no clear answer. In the Moco Expedition chat episodes, we'll be unraveling some of the different storytelling conundrums that we've encountered. Long unanswered questions will be unearthed, observations revealed, and theories discovered, or debunked, as the case may be. Today we're talking good and bad writing habits. Do you have some of these too? I invite you to reflect as you listen and share with us after. So grab your writing notebook, put on your best adventurer's cap, and welcome to the MoCo Expedition. So what kind of uh, bad writing habits have you guys felt like you've developed over the years? And or good How do you combat habits. them? Or Yeah, or good ones. It's funny because my writing habits have changed so frequently that I don't write the same way for many things. I think I'm starting to get into a rhythm of writing, but if I compare how I wrote for Shades of Grey, it's so different than how I write for Ley Lines. Um, And I don't know if I would say that the old way is good or bad. It's just different. Um, And it has different pros and cons. Because when I was writing Shades of Grey, I'd only write four pages at a time. I was very set on four pages at a time for some reason. Um, and four pages being comic pages. So the script would vary in size, but it would only cover four comic pages of material each time. And what that gave me was um, a fluidity and an ability to change things a lot back and forth. But the con of that is that, um, and I was talking with, with Corey about this the other day, is that sh- looking back on that work, it's really interesting to me because there are pieces of it that I think are really strong, and there are pieces of it that are exceptionally weak. So it's like a highlighting of like stuff where I'm like, I can see this value, and then other stuff where I'm like, burn it with fire. This is so embarrassingly bad. Well, and the thing I said to you at the time was, you were learning what works and what doesn't. And you really can't learn it didn't work until you posted it and found out it didn't work. So that's not a bad thing. What? No, it's not a bad thing. And it's not just that. It's it's uh, editing. And when you're writing mm-hmm. four pages at a time, you can't really develop things like theme. Um, because you don't know what your theme is, really. And we've, we've kind of had a... I think there's a Pixar rule that says that exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if we've covered it or will cover it uh, yet. I don't know when in time we are right now, but uh, I, I definitely have seen the, the truth of that, that. It's really, really hard to write something thematically and completely when you are quite literally making it up as you go along from page to page with no real um, guiding force. You can't really craft it the same way that you can if you write something from start to finish and then go back. But doing something from start to finish can sometimes make things sort of stale or stiff. And so I don't know if it would be a bad 
habit or not to say that I guess it a bad habit that I'm having to work out is um, not valuing planning. And I always used to view planning as sort of this this a waste of time that um, I would spend all this time with bad ideas and and have to go through all these things that didn't matter. And I always felt that planning took too long and I didn't have the time to plan. And now I'm realizing that planning helps you avoid, one, avoid doing the bad ideas that seem like a good idea at the time. And two, it makes the end result quicker to get to rather than slower because you don't have as many tripping points when you've planned something. So I think that's my bad habit that I'm trying to make into a good habit right now is um, learning learning how to value the planning stages. Well, and it can for... definitely save you time in the long run. Oh, yeah. So, especially, well, it'll keep you from putting something on the page that you have to go back and try to retcon. Yeah. But... Oh, uh, yeah. But that's fun. That sounded like personal experience right there, Matt. Honestly, that's the one thing that I've kind of... that's That's bitten me a couple of times in Border that I've had to go back and do is... Uh, and and I'm learning – I don't think I will ever be a purely organizational writer. I don't think I will ever be able to sit down and go, you know, this is where I will be for sure or at least, you know, reasonably sure in eight months, a year, two years. But I am definitely learning the value of sitting down and keeping extensive notes because, like, Three or four times I've done something where it's like, oh, that character had a completely different name in the first uh, time I introduced them. Mm-hmm. Or that character had a completely different hairstyle. Um, and so I am becoming very much a fan of the well-filled-out notes. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever had a problem with continuity like that. I haven't either until I was writing it, you know, over four months mm. and and not necessarily all while it was fresh in my mind from time to time. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. I think I don't run into it as much because I tend to obsess. If I'm thinking about a story, I'll be thinking about it so much. It'll be kind of second nature to me, what the characters look like, what they're called, what they're uh, what they're about. Kind of, like, it's just kind of... I, I know it as well as I know myself, usually, at that point, and, and I have no problem recalling details like that. But I've always been uh, oriented that way, so... Well, and I normally do, too, but it it really just is... For this one, it's – I have it in my mind. I have it. I know it because I know the characters like the back of my hand. I know what – you know. but it's, it's where they are at the moment. Mm-hmm. And as I've evolved on a continuing basis, because it's all internal, I don't necessarily have the ability to just in my head look back and say – this is where they were, you know, three 
three months ago so that I can be have that level of consistency. Right. And there is an extra challenge, I think, with the time because it's the little details that'll trip you up. Yeah. Um, it's not the it's not the big details. It's not the important ones. It is it's small things, but they do matter. Um, and it's if you've written something, you know, five ten weeks ago, um, the brain. I think what happens is that the characters ev- are evolving as you work on it because it's not something that you're sitting down all at once to do. It's something that you're doing over time, and they they change. And as a result, our the way that we envision them changes as well. Uh, so I think part of it is just the, the nature of the beast when you're doing something long-term sequential. That makes a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, and I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Well, especially if you're doing like the same scene and it takes you a couple weeks to get through. Yeah. And you introduce something at I mean, the start of a scene. Some of them are, are small things like having to go back and, and I had... Um, uh, Siobhan had completely different hair the first time I introduced her as when I was describing it later and I only noticed it later and I went back and updated it because uh, I had not been 100% sure what a pixie cut actually was mm-hmm. um, research but, yeah. <laughs> well yeah but yeah it was just that that having to remember to keep a running record like that. And that's so some organization can be useful even for disorganized, spontaneous authors. Uh, so long as it is being used not to lock you down into a space where you can't write, but to keep you in a space where you can without contradicting yourself. Right. Yeah. And even like with, with artwork, um, learning for me, learning one, how to make simple looks simple costumes that I wouldn't have to think really hard about helped and two learning how to make a reference and keep a reference is helpful but I still will screw up things um, where I'll forget something that belongs on a a, a character or um, I'll, like uh, recently I have a character that is in the um in the Merchant Guild, and he's a scribe. And I thought, oh, it's later in the day, wouldn't it be cool to have ink stains on his upper arms? Well, as a result, I forgot them in some pages and put them in other pages, but now I have to go through all of the pages and make sure that they're consistent in all of them. So little detail, but now that it's been made important, it must stay that way. I know that's an issue you've had er- earlier with characters who have scars. Yeah. Where sometimes they will have them and sometimes they will not. Yeah. I didn't mean to just. No, no, it's it's, it's it's it's. I think with it's kind of, that's a type of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, is it's that would in in written word would be description, but in the visual medium is is quite literally just the the visuals of a character. Um. And keeping a character on model for the long term can sometimes be tricky. Yeah. Well, there's a reason why uh, in movies they uh, they have a guy who just stands on set and watches for continuity. Yeah. And that's even then job. messes up, even oh, though yeah. that's his one job. Well, it's really hard. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's a reason why you dedicate a guy to it, but, it, like, I, I would be terrible at it, just being that. I'm not... 
I'm not saying that like, oh, well, look at these people who can't even do their job. No, it's like even even in a movie where there is someone whose only job is to do that, they still mess up. So yeah, yep. it 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 will definitely happen to all of us, no matter what our uh, our medium is. The only answer is eternal vigilance. That's right. That and freedom. Well, <laughs> well eternal that's vigilance. Good, good habit then. Is failing this... still, as you just mentioned. What about you, Corey? What's your bad habit? Or your I feel good like habit? I've had a really hard time maintaining the sanctity of my working space recently. Like, I'll be like, oh, I, I, I need to retreat to my study and uh, uh, write. And then before I open up my word processor, I'll be on YouTube watching fail videos, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- so that can be an issue where it's just, you know... If, if I'm talking about how I need to get to my muse and I need to create my muse by creating this space, but the stuff that isn't my muse is creeping right in there too, and suddenly, you know, I can't access it on command like, like I used to be able to. So I think that's been a, a bad habit that I've really been struggling with lately. I know some people that will um, either specifically, I've, and I've done this trick as a disconnect. The first thing I do is disconnect my internet. Mm-hmm. Um, when I get because I know that my my tendency is oh well I'll just check my email, right. um, or to turn off all notifications that produce sound or to mute the computer so mm-hmm. you don't get a, like a little bing when email comes in or some Facebook update happens or whatever because then it just you you know you shouldn't look at it. But it just sits there. You've heard the noise, and the Pavlovian response has been activated, and you just have to look at that message. You need to know. And that can just wreak havoc. Interesting. Um, <laughs> just because, uh, like me, I, I, I guess I'm such a... I, I value my privacy enough to the point where uh, I don't often answer my phone. I don't... <laughs> um, I definitely don't check my email that often. I'm on Facebook's maybe biannually. Um, but uh, that sort of thing's never been an issue for me. <laughs> It's not really all that inaccurate. I'm odd because I have just a little bit enough ADD that I actually view checking my email and and Facebook as kind of a part of my process in that if I don't have it at all, I will not stay seated to write. Mm. That I need to have some other things I can have going – uh, the the online equivalent of me constantly tapping my foot. Sure. And I guess I've done that before, too, where I'll be like on Google Chat or something like that, and I'll be talking with somebody else while I write. And that, that's that been effective. So I can I can definitely see that perspective. Uh, but yeah, some in terms of just communication, I'm definitely the kind of person where I believe that uh, all of these modes of getting in contact with me are definitely there for my convenience. So... So when my aunt yells at me for never checking my text message, I gently chide her back and say, "I'm, I'm sorry, but you didn't buy my phone." <laughs> so <laughs> fair enough. All right. But that's that's a thing for me. I, I I get back to people in my own time, and sometimes that frustrates them a lot. But yeah, so I think that's that that habit. I would say. Find what works for you. If it's 
no internet because you will get distracted, then okay. Then know that and put yourself in a situation where you can survive because uh, by disconnecting like Robin does. Mm-hmm. If you are someone who needs, you know, every so often to step away and uh, have the internet there for you, do it, but but manage yourself, time yourself, or create constructive strategies by which you manage that. And I guess that's the thing I'm having trouble with right now is creating a constructive strategy. Um, if it's something like timing, something that analytical, it'll fail. I'm just that's exactly what my mother would try to do to keep me on task with homework. And oh yeah, and I'm not saying that that works for everyone. I don't time myself. Um, no, no I, and it's a good suggestion for somebody who that might work for. I'm just trying to say that that specifically I don't think would work for me. I'm trying to figure out what will. Um, I think, Corey, you're a, a very feeling person. Yeah. So something that will influence how you feel about something that may have an impact. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, just last night, I got some writing done, and I think a big part of that influence there, I mean, for the, for the first bit, I was I was on there and I had my word processor open and I didn't write anything for a good half hour and uh, yeah talking to people on Gchat helped uh, a little bit of uh, rye whiskey helped um, so yeah you're right anything that kind of changes my uh, my feeling is not a bad thing and if it's funny that it you better, you know it's funny you mentioned the uh, a little bit of rye whiskey I never would have believed it and I am certainly not encouraging anyone who might have any kind of problem uh, to to consider this, but there have definitely been projects where I sat down and said, this isn't getting done if I'm not just a little bit more drunk. And yeah, yeah um, I, I was talking to Robin about that last night as well. Uh, a big thing for uh, me, again, is that feeling, and um, I just, I was really, really self-conscious about everything I was writing last night until I made myself less self-conscious and <laughs> lowered my inhibitions writing-wise. And um, and alcohol is a good way to do that. And I think she, you you told me that that's been advocated by writers for as long as there's been writing in alcohol. <laughs> there there are some. Oh, I don't yeah. remember what the author was, but who the author was. But I remember there is an author that quite fami- famously said, "Never write sober." Um, for myself, that's not so much an option because I sure. can't drink. But I do find it interesting that when I am writing, I I feel like I'm in a different place. There's a lot of uh, analytical stuff that goes into my writing beforehand, plotting things out, but most of the actual writing will happen when I'm in a car driving somewhere, and it can only work if I'm used to going to a location, and I'll just set myself on autopilot, which is probably really unsafe, but I might be a better driver when I'm not paying attention than when I am. And I will just imagine scenes and work through scenes and try scenarios over and over and over again. And then I'll blink and I'll be at work. So then, you know, hey, it's great. And I'll do the same thing on the way back home. So when I actually sit down to write, it's like going to that place in my mind mentally where I've worked out all of those scenes and just combining them all and putting them on paper. So I don't, I'm not critical or thinking about what I'm writing when I'm writing it at all. I only get critical after it's already done. I think that's similar to how I discovered that I kind of need music 
uh, playing while I write was I did a lot of my writing on road trips back when I was growing up, and uh, a big part of that was just, you know, the radio's on, there's nothing else to do, I can read or I can write, and and when you're done with your book, it's just write, so that's, that's kind of, I think, helped me kind of discover what works for me and what doesn't. I do a lot of my thinking out of things in the car and coming up with certain phrasing, but then there's still all of that fun, uh, connective tissue that you need to do to uh, to make a scene actually work, that that's what I have to sit down and actually do when I'm sitting down and actually doing the work. Um, because, of course, if you skip that connective tissue, then your name is Stephen Moffat. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh. Who is this season on Doctor Who, if I may say, at his Moffatiest? At his oh, Moffatiest. He has developed. Apparently, they gave him a lot more budget for cinematography, and he has spent it because the cinematography is very nice. But there was one episode that, because it started in media res and jumped around a bit, I looked at it and I said, "Oh, he's finally gotten what he's always wanted. He now just can do those big scenes and not care about any of the other crap in between them." I, I kind of understand that because I'm a writer who mostly cares about the big moments too um but you also know that you have to get to them (laughs) yes well and you can't have ice cream every day is the other bit i'm saying you know like like if you want to if you want to build a house you don't get to do nothing but rec rooms you do if you want to have a very weird house your friends don't go to well they might go to it for the rec room (laughs) Yeah, but when they have to poop, they're going to be a little disappointed. Sure. Uh, yeah, and I guess that's that's just it is uh and I got a million analogies like this, I guess. But you have to have that foundation. You have to know where you're going and what you want to say and if what you want to say is feels, that's that's okay, but that's not a story. So, yeah, and that's that is the thing that that I think all of it, because I like the big moments too, but I think that what's forgotten. And here's a, here's a writing tip. We'll tie this into the thought, into the uh, theme. You have to earn your big moments. Yeah. Well, your big moments are exclamation points. And think yeah. about your average paragraph. If every single sentence ends with an exclamation point, it's like a third grader wrote it. If there are exclamation points in the middle of sentences, it's like someone who is an idiot wrote it. And so... if it's both, it's like an idiot third grader wrote it. Exactly. Or if you're Michael Bay, it's just a long string of exclamation points. Well, as Michael Bay fictionally pointed out in an, inter- in an interview that was not actually with him, he said disclaiming, Michael Bay is a great artiste, which is an anagram for tits are great. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, that's that your apocryphal. clever for Michael Bay, actually. Yeah, there's your apocryphal uh, quote for the day. Yes, there's your made-up lie that you can... Your made-up lie. Um, but no, yeah, that's that's the thing, is that... And you your sentence has to earn an exclamation point, just like your story has to earn your big moments. Right. Because you wouldn't say, all right, Mom, I'm going to go get some milk, unless you're William Shatner or <laughs> uh, Christopher Walken. Um but, and and just like that, you can't just have a a piece 
a, a story or a work that is made up of nothing but those big scenes. Because one, we will lack a context to understand why they are important. And two, we will get bludgeoned to death by them and not want to keep paying attention. Well, I think context, we're talking about uh, writing habits and, and learning learning things to keep in mind. Um, one thing I've really had to learn a lot about, and I'm still struggling to keep in mind, is the difference between a reader context and a writer context. Because I have all the context. A reader has only the context that I provide. And I think in general, um, for a lot of writers, this is a problem where we don't want to give something away. Not realizing that without information, a reader cannot form context, for one. And two, if you tell a reader something flat out at the beginning, they don't have the context to take that information and understand its magnitude. So having a balancing act and keeping a very strong awareness of what a reader is aware of and what context they have um, versus what context I have is uh, a real juggling act that I'm trying to get better at. Well, and this is something that I've really admired about Supernatural as a show, is whenever one of their characters has a secret, they get it out the next episode. They never sit on a secret. Um, the, when you ever have those huge... Uh, where you have a show where somebody's sitting on a secret for an entire uh, season, it tends to get tedious. And the way they solve that on the show is just, you know what, no, the other person either figures it out or they come clean the very next episode, usually at the end of the next episode. And um, I've noticed it's actually really a, a great strength because it means that they can get a lot more done and um, if a twist is not that strong, it's it's done with. You don't have to worry about it sucking and destroying your whole season. And you can do a lot more. You can get to a better twist quicker, and you find out you have a lot more to say if you just get it out. So I I, I really th I admire that. It's if if there's that kind of uh, uh, um, irony where where only where the reader knows something that the uh, characters don't, reverse that quickly rather than slowly, in order for your... Uh, you, you can't have an entire film where it's... Uh, there's a bomb under the table, and, and one person doesn't know about it. and that's, that's not sustainable for two hours. It's sustainable for a scene. So I think that's important uh, for well, and I think that um, Inception does this well, where they, they give you information constantly through the film. But it's never too much information, and it's never uh, too little information. It's always just enough information for you to theorize about something, um, which adds to the tension, but not, uh, but not leave you so much in the dark that you don't know what's going on, or have any context for the stakes of what's happening. Right. So uh, yeah, I definitely feel like that's a that's a, a healthier attitude to take, which is the if you've got this awesome twist and you're sitting on it, <laughs> don't yeah, yeah don't don't sit on and it. That's, Get that's it out. What I'm realizing too is there's lots of things that I felt like oh I'll I'll leave this until you know the very end of ley lines, and now I'm like no I need to start piecing this out and echoing this this concept in a smaller form 
way earlier. Otherwise, it's just going to be this massive exposition dump at the end, which isn't a satisfying way to end any any series. Um, so, I'm definitely learning a lot more about about context. Um, and another th- another environment that I'm learning it in is also for character. Um, and this I, I have to credit to one of my colorists. Uh, he was reading over the chapter script um, and he made a comment about how he or we were talking about what we were talking about we were talking about something I wanted to do with a character that's what it was and he said you really need to spend some time telling us more about these characters so that I will care about them because it sounds like you're going to be doing some really big dramatic things with them but I have no context for who they are or why they should matter. And if you don't do something with them, it's going to fall flat. So I, I'm basically dedicating an entire chapter just to developing um, characters so that they have that, again, that context. Um, and it's, it's proving to be one of my favorite chapters of all time. So it's definitely paying off. And I think that's pretty, uh, pr- pretty good. Again, that's that context character context and your your readers don't have it unless you yeah. give it to them but i i had forgotten i kind of just assumed well i like these characters therefore everyone should like these characters but i'd never given them a reason to because i hadn't given them an opportunity to spend time with them so right. hmm. okay um do we have any other bad habits i just went from a six-week buffer to a one-day buffer back to a two-and-a-half-week buffer it, it took me a while, and I, I kind of figured out part of it, although it's going to sound very familiar. How so? Well, um, I got to a point where I got through the initial run of what I wanted to do. I got to the end of Chapter 3 of Border, which ends in a, ends in a fight scene that I had been planning for a while, ends in a, in, in a cliffhanger way that sets up really what will be the ongoing plot of Book 1. But at the same time kind of resolved everything that I knew I was doing explicitly. And so I sat there going, <laughs> what do I do from here? And, and it took me a while to plow through and get back to kind of the fundamental advice that I've been giving myself the whole time, which is just do it. You know, earn virtue by work and, and put words on paper and for my kind of writing, just find where, where you're going by getting there. And once I reminded myself that I have permission to write without knowing where I am going, I was writing again. So you kind of had to give yourself permission. Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, that that, that was it. I needed to have a little bit of a talk with myself where I said, you know you're never or you're not often going to know exactly where you're going next because that's the kind of writer you are. You've talked about it on the podcast. You've talked about it to friends and family that that's what you do and that's okay. And I just needed to to get back in that mindset to get over this panic of – Oh my God, I'm four months in and I've used up my explicit knowledge of where I'm going and hem and ha and 
that first slump of, oh, God, why am I doing this? Why do I think that I can do this, that this is a thing that I can do? Yeah, that motivation bit can hit pretty hard. And it, it happens periodically, too. Like, the what you're describing, I remember having uh, a similar experience really clearly when I was doing Shades of Grey near the end. Because I yeah. was feeling all that... Remember, we, we talked previously about all that pressure of finishing something. And it got to a point where I just... I did not know where to go with it. And I was just sort of spinning it out and spinning it out and not liking where it was going and felt it was repeating things I'd already covered. And I felt really stuck. And I was really proud of how few updates I ever missed doing Shades of Grey. It was pretty much unless it was scheduled, it was there. And it, it, I got to my last page. And I went to bed that night knowing that I had nothing for the, the next day. Absolutely nothing. And having to accept that I was going to miss an update and that that wasn't going to be the end of the world. And that night I quite literally dreamed what I was supposed to write next. Nice. So there's something about that, that letting go and accepting that can open, open up, I think, the mind to move forward sometimes. Earlier when you said you kind of had this explicit knowledge of where you're going and then you exhausted it, how did that explicit knowledge manifest? I mean... Like, if so, for someone like me, I'll, I'll do a timeline, but what do you do? Well, essentially, I, I sit with an idea in my head for a very long time before I ever put it on paper. Because I'm thinking about it, and I'm shaping it, and I'm giving it a taste and a flavor, and then I start to do it. And so when I did Border, I did the first six weeks of Border in one stretch. Just sat down, and in about a week, I knocked out the first six weeks. Because I had a very clear idea of what those first six weeks were going to be. And that's not uncommon for me. I mean, it's, as, as Corey can attest to, with my longest-running unfinished work, um, I'm great at getting the first 30 pages down. It's all the crap in the middle before the explosive finale that I'm, I'm not so good at getting to. And I made it last longer than usual with Border through kind of just intestinal fortitude but I, I got to that same point that I get to with everything I've used up that initial burst of energy I've used up that initial burst of idea of what I'm doing and then I panic and I get into the I'm not good enough and I don't do it I don't do something if it's hard um, and back away and I've been getting better at that overall I've, I've come back to more things. I finished more things in the last year than at any time previously. And but border is something that I will always credit border with no matter what happens for it is it has been a lesson in remembering that writing is the art of putting your butt in the chair and sitting down and doing the damn thing. Um, because at the end of the day, that's what I had to do. I had to give myself permission to write blindly, give myself permission to put something out that may be less than perfect, and give myself permission to put something into the world that in the end might end up sucking really badly. There's uh, something I've said on a different, different podcast in different contexts um, that I realized when I was – I don't remember when it was. I think I was – teaching the kids something in, in class and I realized that you in order to ever master something 
you have to love it enough to be terrible at it. Because no one is good at something the first time around. And if you actually truly want to learn something and master it and become great at it, you have to accept that you're going to periodically be horrible at it. And to just power through that and love what you're doing enough to accept that it's okay. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're describing. Um, yeah, same, and that's the same a, sort of epiphany. That's a really good way of uh, of describing it that I hadn't thought of, that you have to love it enough to be terrible at it. I really like that as a description of what you have to do. Um, and it reminded me of, um, honestly, of the thing that goes around Facebook every so often of, you look at someone who is who has made a masterpiece, and you see the masterpiece. You don't see that the master has failed, you know, ten thousand times before they ever produce that. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's one of those things where I can I can tell myself as often as I like when it's when other people are going through it that. Oh, you just keep doing, you just keep doing. But then when it's you, you have to do it. You have to say, when it was someone else, I said, okay, I could get through this because I could just keep pushing. But then it's you and it's your work and it's your panic. And you have to remember that and you have to just keep going. It reminds me of what you we we commonly run into when we're doing conventions, which is somebody will come up and say, "Wow, your art's really really good," and you'll say, "What you're not seeing is the ten years of practice <laughs> that went into that." You know, so uh, yeah, it's definitely a sort of a time thing. I, I do appreciate that that wanting to be good at something does require a period where you have to give yourself some grace for not being very good at it to begin with. And it's also like it's a periodic thing, too, because um, I once saw this really great chart that was talking about um, skill level versus perception that um, you will you will have a periods where you think really highly of yourself and then periods where you think that you're worst. And that was talking specifically about art, but I think it's also true of writing. Um, And what's happening is that if you could map it. The skill and perception would be kind of like a sinusoidal waves out of phase with each other but overall they're increasing they're going up you can't perceive it in the moment because what happens is that your skill level will increase but your perception will lag so your skill level goes up and you perceive yourself your skill greater than it actually is then your perception will catch up with your skill and suddenly you will perceive all the flaws and go, oh my god, everything sucks. So your skills are still improving, but from your perception, you're horrible. And it just, it, it continues like that uh, endlessly and torturously. <laughs> you're going to have to go back and define what a sinusoidal wave is. Oh, it's, it's where it goes up and down and up and down in a smooth like a roller coaster. Ah. Like 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 a roller coaster or or hills in a cartoon where they're just whip whoop whip whoop whip whoop and the heads go on the necks and they're all stretchy. 
I'm sure that really cleared Just it up for like you. that. Well, no, because it actually did clear it up for me because fortunately I have at least a, a basic proficiency in uh, Corey and Robin. <laughs> <laughs> I took I took that uh, Rosetta Stone. That Rosetta Stone? Oh, I, I should look into that one. <laughs> so you I'm can not understand yourself. Sure. I was going to say I've kind of been feeling like that recently too. I I don't know. I've personally as a as a writer I I'm I'm having some trouble lately. I don't know. Um definitely last night I I was writing some some material for the trickster tale and I definitely felt like a piece of it was just yeah, putting my butt in the seat, opening the pro- program and and you know, going. And I don't think it was my best work ever, but at the same time I think I'm also in that place where I don't perceive anything as my best work right now. So that's yeah, and thing. that's that's a, a problem I've been having, honestly, with the Trickster's Tales as well. And, but I, not for me, for that, I think it's a different thing. I think that the problem that I've had with just getting the Trickster's Tales out is since it is something for someone else's work and that someone else is someone that is obviously very important to me, I'm terrified of doing it wrong. Yeah. Which is silly because I'm just going to be so overjoyed with anything that you write. Because I love the things that you guys write. That you but can't that... do it wrong. You, you can't. I mean, unless it's it's something where it's like something horribly disrespectful to me or my characters, which I can't imagine either of you ever doing. You can't, you can't do it wrong. I'm just going to be tickled pink no matter what. And and I know that, but at the same time, there is that that desperate fear of of putting out something that is not going to live up to the story that you are telling and the brand mm-hmm. that you have created with it. Which, ironically, I I have not felt when I've done commercial work, um, because ev- even when it's been a universe that I know less about, and I think that that's because. While I think it's cool, while I'm glad certainly to be doing it and contributing and to be getting paid for it, it's it's not Robin's webcomic. It's not as personal. Yeah. Yeah, like if I put out something that was disappointing to the RPG company that I, I put something out for, I would be disappointed in myself professionally. If I put out something that was disappointing to the fans of, of Ley Lines that didn't live up to the quality of the series, that would, that would affect me personally. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Um, I actually, I think I described it to Robin last night. I think the other bit for me was, I want, I, like, I don't know what it is, but there's this need in me where, where um, I, I want somebody to read through the trickster tales and then point at mine and, said, and say, that was my favorite. I, 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 I want it to be, like, that good. And I don't know, that perfectionist streak is, is coming up in me, which is wild because it's usually so quiet. Well, I don't know what to how to how to help you guys. I wish I did. Oh, it's not something like you help us with, I well, don't but think. But it, it's just it's sort of interesting to me that you're both tying yourselves in knots. Um, but most of the knots there are, are because of the perception, not because they're actually there course i mean being an artist is largely self-inflicted unfortunately to an an extent because we perceive them they are there i mean that's 
I, I, I definitely think that we both understand that you are going to be overjoyed with what we, what we bring. You wouldn't have asked anyone who's, who's writing you don't enjoy uh, and, or, or asked anyone who you don't think could be up to snuff for uh, the Ley Lines universe. But it, it consequently, because of that trust, knowing that we were in the small group of people that you asked to be a part of this thing, um, I think that, that that internal drive to not turn in anything but the best, it, it is real because we feel it. Yeah. That's, that's true. And I didn't mean to invalidate. Oh, no, the, not at the, all. The perception. Of, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, guess, I guess for me it's the, yes, logically I know you'll love anything I write. That's not what I feel. And I know that feeling's coming from me and not from you, but um, it's there, and it's making me, or not making me, but definitely uh, affecting me in, in ways. So, yeah. Well, I guess to a, a kind of expand it out, it, there can happen... Uh, a perception can occur with readership as well. Um, a desire to please a readership in a specific way can often be crippling to a writer or a creator who publishes mm -hmm. their work online. Um, or I remember um, when I was doing Shades of Grey, and I haven't done it really, I don't think as much at all in Ley Lines because I learned my lesson, was that I would perceive that there'd be a certain dynamic that people wanted to see more of um, or in a specific way, and I would try and do what I thought people wanted me to do, and they were always the hardest pages to get out, and they never actually performed the way that I thought they would. The pandering. Pandering, yeah. I would, I would, I would try to pander to what I thought people wanted, um, and often it just fell flat on its nose. So I've learned with with ley lines, like there are things that I can emphasize. Um, like if I notice people having a, a lot of interest in a particular character, I might give them a little more screen time just because I'm noticing the interest, but nothing that would actually go out of its way to change the plot or story, just reveal some more of the story than I was intending. Mm -hmm. so sort of like, oh, you're interested in this character. Well, I'll give you some backstory. The backstory always existed, but now you just get to see a little bit more of it. Mm-hmm. Peek behind the curtain a bit. Yeah. yeah. And it, that's sort of a different experience. I'm just wondering if if that kind of... Uh, I, I'm wondering if that translates at all to this issue or if they're or somewhat separate. Is that, that perception of expectation and trying to meet an expectation rather than trying to meet um, an internal expectation. Hmm. If you were just writing for yourselves, like Matt, you do Border and you write for Border, you have readers, but you're writing for yourself. Um, I wonder if that would change the dynamic any. Yeah, and and it's possible. Although I think that it might be uh, somewhat um, optimistic to say that I have readers. Um, although I will be fair. Now my dad has gotten his twin sister to read, <laughs> so I have I do have at least readers. 
and I actually, I've, I've fallen a little behind, I confess, but uh, your dad has been so amazing in his, uh, you have an advocate there. That's awesome. I do, I do. And I was on Facebook, and he was talking about your latest upload, and I was like, what did I miss? I have to catch up with this. So I went, <laughs> and I knew that, I, I just, I don't like reading things online, which is pathetic, because I have a webcomic, but I like print, so I copied everything that I'd missed, and I printed it all out, so it's going to be my morning reading for a while. Um, and that's all because of your dad. So, <laughs> good job being an advocate, father of yours. Well, I will be very happy then that that he is continuing to reach and inspire people. Yeah. So if you could sell it on me, I think I think you have more people reading than you know. Well, although to value be, them. <laughs> to be fair, oh, and I do value them, but to be fair. Um, selling you on something that you already kind of write, uh, write that you already kind of like, uh, is not, I hope that difficult, but no, I'm, and I, and I joke, but I do appreciate it a lot. I, I appreciate all of the support that he has given it and all of the support that he has shared it around with people on his Facebook and who talk to him and who pass him on the street, uh, and who come within shouting distance. Oh, we, we're kind of talking about perfectionism a bit there, and that was going to be mine. Because okay. I kind of feel like it, I kind of, I don't know, have been on that streak lately. And then, like I said, that's weird for me. At least I think it's weird for me. I'm, I'm in a strange place with my writing right now, and I guess that's, I think that's a piece of it. We'll talk trying about to unpack that. it. I've, I've been trying to write this trickster tale, and there's a couple other stories that I've been trying to work on, and... Uh, I think a piece of it is uh, maybe depression or something else. Just just how I feel is affecting my writing or keeping me from writing. And uh, um, I think a piece of it is also kind of, particularly with a trickster tale, can I do it enough justice to uh, to make you, you know, I guess to make you proud, to so I can feel proud enough of it to share it with others, with the Leyline's name on it. Um, and... Uh, but I'm I'm trying to figure out whether or not that's like an excuse, like if if I'm using that as a way to avoid writing, or if it's uh, you know legitimate. Like like I have a concern there, and that my that my I I do need to improve something before before I. Uh, it sounds so stupid when I say it. <laughs> before I put pen to paper, it needs to be better. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, what. Have I told you my particularly weird writing block I have to deal with sometimes? Mm, probably not. We're the last generation that will have ever dealt with writing a rough draft on paper. Yeah, you did mention this before, okay. but go on. I n No, but I think, and I can't remember if it was in a podcast or if it was just talking. And I think that that has in some of us put a an odd dichotomy in it where I feel sometimes like writing it in the computer is the final draft and that when I put it in the computer it has to be perfect mm -hmm. and so I go I don't I do it slowly and I do it laboriously and I go back and I constantly re-edit instead of plowing forward and I don't think it's a problem that people born a couple of years after us who have never had that, who did all of their rough drafts just on computer from the beginning, um, I don't think they have it. I don't think it's an issue that they face. 
And so I sometimes, if I'm really stuck, I will write out part of it on paper. Or I will, I will just very much convince myself by talking through it and reminding myself that I'm being silly. I can revise something I put down on the computer. I can come back to it if I need to. But first and foremost, I can put it down and know that it is not the absolute last draft that I have to send to whomever. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. Um because uh, I was talking earlier about how how uh, you uh, how how do you know how much how how much you've got to go you know like how much have you planned it out how much uh, is in your headspace that's you know before you post it and for me I said it was really really uh, useful to have a timeline so I'll timeline kind of my plot out and that's actually a tool I have not used as well recently I think I've fallen away from it and that's actually to my detriment so I guess. Back to basics is always a good uh, piece of advice, too. Yeah, and I think o- often it's it's funny how easy it is to forget the tactics that work well for oneself. Yeah. yeah I don't I know what that is. You know, that seems really counterintuitive, but I know that it's happened to me more than once where I'm like, oh, I'm, why can't I figure this out? What's wrong with me? And I'm going to be like, have I made an outline? No. Do I always make an outline? Yes. Then go make an outline! <laughs> right. What's wrong with you, brain? Well, and honestly, I think it's... Again, it's something I hadn't thought of in these terms, but the two things that I tell everyone that I am teaching fencing in the SCI from the very beginning is that the two things you will have to work on every day, every time you suit up, no matter what, you will have to work on your footwork and you will have to work on your point control. Because those are the two most fundamental things that everything else builds on. And almost every problem you have can come down to some combination, some percentage of footwork and point control. Hmm. And, yeah. and writing is the same way. No matter how high we get, no matter to what peaks we climb, rather than high we get, um, or no matter how, no matter how low we get, we still have to do those basics. We still have to do those most simple things and make sure that we do them right. Yeah. And I got to remember that for myself. I mean, it's the exact same thing in karate. It's, you know, you, you want to learn a new technique. Well, guess what? 90% of the class is doing stuff you've done before. And uh, just keeping up that level of fitness and that that physical awareness of yourself so that when you learn a new move, you can do it. You can understand it on an intuitive level because you're well-versed in the basics. And I just got to keep reminding myself that. So we've all got other things that we can draw on that tell us to remember the basics, do the basics. Yep. And if it were easy... We would never need to remind ourselves of it. I suppose that's true. You, because after a certain point, it, a lot of it, I'm sure, is just taking taking a basic for granted. You know, you you start learning the skills. Um, it, it's something that I notice with drawing a lot is I'll have boom and busts of uh, reference usage, um, because most of the time, well, not most of the time, what'll happen is that I'll map out what I want to draw. And if I'm in a high reference stage, 
I will go through every panel and I will take my computer or my camera and I will go through and make reference of every bit of conversation or action. And I will try and replicate the angles that I have planned. I will attach cameras to ceiling fans and to put them on timers just so I can get those any extreme angle. And so I'll be really reference heavy for a while. And then I'll get comfortable and start just going, eh, I don't need it. And I'll, I'll, I'll deviate from the reference or I won't make reference at all. And the figures will become looser um, and more, more fluid in the drawing. But at the same time, the anatomy and the will see a definite deficiency. So the expressions in the face will become more expressive, but at the expense of technical ability. And then I'll get frustrated with my drawing and then start making reference again. So it's like this boom and bust where I think both are actually skills. Being able to use reference and pull from reference and learn from reference. Um, I always notice a jump in artwork when I do that, but it can become stiff after a while and limiting. Um, and so deviating from reference, letting go of that basic to try something else, I think is also a valuable part of the process. I think that happens with writing too. Yeah. And I think both are definitely, uh, both are definitely skills uh, that you mentioned. Um, but yeah, I think that it's, it's so hard to remember, but it is so important to remember that you got to keep at those fundamentals or they will get away from you and you will be stuck tearing your hair out and weeping and gnashing your teeth and all of the other things that we have been doing instead of writing. <laughs> That's part of the process. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, thank God, because that means I don't have much process left on the top of my head. <laughs> you still have your teeth. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Well, as long no, as I don't move on to pulling. Let's keep those where they are. Right. I'm just saying uh, well, to I gnash, think... not to pull right. out. Oh, okay. Whew. I will, That's I will good. pull them out and put them on my head. No, because that just means I've gone crazy. <laughs> I'll say, this seems ill-advised. So, let's talk about inspirations this week. It's been a very up-and-down week. I guess almost in line with what we've been talking about, of remembering to go back to basics. I have real trouble having faith in anything, and I have trouble with the concept of, of grace. I was getting super worn out and exhausted, and my mind was going very bad mental places and I stopped and asked myself you know why am I what what purpose does this negative thought process serve what pro, what purpose does this just step out in front of a bus and end it all thought process serve and I realized that it's because I couldn't allow myself to have grace I could not say you are tired right now and this is overwhelming so just rest because I always treated rest as not an option. So to, to be able to accept that giving yourself time to rest, giving yourself the grace to do that, is a healthy, valuable part of life. And having faith that things will work out in their time 
through hard work and addressing problems one thing at a time, but that they'll work out and that things are going to be okay. And having, having faith in that was really helpful. And it was just sort of odd that the night that I had that conclusion, the next day, a whole bunch of things just kind of went click and solved like a million and one problems that the day before seemed insurmountable. So I guess I'm, I'm inspired just by the con how powerful the concepts of grace and uh, faith really are. And even outside of even a, a religious context, but just in a sort of personal faith in oneself and a, one's ability to face the world. So that's kind of what's on my mind this week. That's good. I think a bit of what's inspiring me is the concept of suspense. And uh, I was thinking, I, I, uh, I think it was last week, yeah, a week ago, um, my folks and I, uh, my parents and I walked through IKEA. And I was thinking to myself, man, you know, it's kind of a big place, and uh, you got like you walk through an IKEA. There's uh, bits for every bit of the home. It's an enormous store. There's a restaurant in there, a daycare center, and basically, if you just stacked an apartment building on top of here, you could live your whole life in here if you got a job at IKEA and never have to leave the building, which is a concept that kind of harkens back to 80s sci-fi called an arcology. And in my brain, I was thinking, man, it'd be awesome if they made like a video game where you're in one and everyone's gone and it's kind of got this like horse suspense sort of vibe and but but man nobody nobody does things like that anymore like all all horrors just reach out and scare you it's that terror that shock moment and has nothing to do with building suspense and dread and letting you play with your own imagination and lo and behold this week alien isolation came out and um I've watched a couple uh uh bits from the opening part and it was everything I wanted. It was I was like, man, here I am with this original idea, and it turns out they've been developing it for the past year, and uh, and released it day of or in the same week where I was thinking that this is something that needed to happen. So I guess um, in terms of uh, understanding pacing in a horror environment, or really just kind of pacing in general, um, suspense and and parsing of information very very uh, deliberately and accurately is is really really important as a writer and. Uh, I'm I'm just glad that I'm not the only person who sees a need sometimes. So that's what I'm inspired. And I've by. heard that that game is really just pants crappingly terrifying. Um, yeah, that's the sense I got from it. The bit I saw got about 45 minutes in, and no alien. Pretty pretty scary though. <laughs> I mean, like like nothing's happened yet, and it's good. Um, so yeah. Well, that's, and that's that's, awesome. that's one of the interesting things about it is that um. Uh, that you can go without experiencing the alien because the alien is not scripted, or rather, the alien is it 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 has its its AI, it has its script, but it it is not set to go through a certain pattern, be in certain areas at certain times. Right. It is set to stalk and find. Well, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I do know uh, that in this coming week, another game called The Evil Within is being released, and it's done by the guy who did Resident Evil 4, which was my favorite of that franchise series, and I, I really felt that it went off the rail in 5 and 6 because it became an action-adventure thing with some horror suggestions, as opposed to actually kind of having a survival horror feel. And apparently he felt the same way because he decided to make this film or this uh, game as a direct 
repudiation of those two games that were made without his uh, input. So I'm I'm really excited that that people seem to have gotten back to the roots of this genre, and I don't know, it inspires me. I like horror as a genre. I think I'm decent at it, and and I like uh, I like seeing what other people can do with it. So that's what's inspired me, Matt. So I have a very odd what's inspired me. Um, I have, as of this moment, Friday the tenth is when we're recording this. I have a very good friend of mine in Wichita, Kansas, who was actually in the hospital underwaiting a uh, triple bypass. It's a it's a surgery that has a very high uh, recovery rate. Uh, my friend found a statistic that. There is only a three to four percent mortality in triple bypasses on people sixty-five and older. So presumably, on a forty-year-old, it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good survival rate. Yeah. But what inspired me is that uh, they've been having some financial problems uh, for a little bit. They've been having some issues, and um, obviously. This is not going to help that. Uh, a friend of theirs set up a GoFundMe for um, helping them with what will no doubt be distressingly high medical bills. And within five hours, it had $2,500. Wow. That's, and that's so awesome. this week I am inspired by people coming together and people people giving of themselves to to their friends when they are in need. Yeah, that, that's and, really inspiring. Yeah. The the community response from he's in the SEA and he is the campaign admin for the Heroes of Rokugan living campaign for L5R. Um, it is now up to three thousand dollars in seven hours. Um, so it's incredibly inspiring to watch people come together and help one another in very difficult times, and I am. Honored to know the people involved with this and honored to be friends with people of such character and charity. That's really cool. All right, for the prompt this week, it is Matt and me. Yarp. Prompt us, Captain. Okay, in a situation where everyone has a dark secret, your character has to have the dumbest one. If you want to try your hand at responding to this prompt, pause the recording for about 10 to 15 minutes and write the best scene, opening sequence, or short story that you can. We'd love to hear what you have to say, so send us a line at info at mocopress.com with your response and we'll read it on the air if you'd like. Or you can share it as a comment on the Moco Press site for this episode. They're all watching me, he repeated to himself again. They all know. He didn't know whether it was true or not, but it felt true. It felt like everyone must know. They gave him furtive glances. 
They gave him knowing stares. They talked about him when he left the table or right before he arrived at it and put on a look of innocence. Innocence, he thought wryly. Ha! A man without secrets was like a unicorn or Santa Claus. You might hear stories, but your odds of meeting one were astronomical. He'd win the lottery first. And oh, what I would spend it on, he thought to himself while almost giggling. But he had to focus. His days passed in unseeing monotony. In a world of secrets, the arcane became the monotonous. Who would have thought that a CIA intelligence analyst would be bored by stories of diplomatic trysts, of international quarrels, of proxy armies dueling in shadows the world lacked the light to penetrate? He filed a report on the stabbing of a consul in Kabul, the most recent defenestration of Prague, and the premiere of Nova Scotia's unusual dalliances. None of it excited him. He walked out to his car at the end of the day and watched his colleagues as they passed by. Men and women in suits that could have been bought from the same government-issue store, serious and dark and boring, and all hiding their secrets. Susan, who had embezzled $500,000 from the Latin American budget, Rodney, who was a third-generation Russian spy and mostly did it so he could have something to talk to his father about. Glenn, who, well, he was Glenn. And they watched him, and he thought they knew. Like he knew. And he thought about if he cared as he pulled into his boring, bland sedan. As he pulled his boring, bland sedan into his cookie-cutter house. Even his mortgage was at a standard rate for a standard beige house in an appropriate suburb. His neighbors were smoking pot or sleeping with each other, and Frankie had more deceased prostitutes in his backyard than the secret grave outside the Bunny Ranch, which he also knew about. Yet there in his house was his secret. If his colleagues knew, they didn't understand. If they cared, well, when he was wrapped in its warm embrace, then he didn't care. And so he took off his coat and tie and turned to the massive television. He was queued up and ready to go, and from the moment the theme song played, he was happy for the first time all day. Yes, he had a secret, he thought contentedly, and someday it would come out and he would wear it proudly. For he, in the world of cloaks and daggers and midnight knife fight rendezvous affairs, was a brony. And he was okay with that for at least a half an hour, or 22 minutes, minus commercials. <laughs> they attract all types. <laughs> they do. The CIA. It's, 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 an, it's an odd place. I'm sure that that's not actually all that far from the truth. Secret <laughs> grave behind the bunny ranch. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I has don't know. to get his inappropriate comment uh, quota met, so, you know. Glenn, who, well, he was Glenn. <laughs> that's his secret? <laughs> no, but imagine. What secret is so dark that, and but you do so often that people look at you and go, yeah, that's just Glenn. That's just what he does. We all know. That or the most recent defenestration of Prague. That's my favorite Did they line. defenestrate the whole of Prague? All of it. Or was it yes, just... They threw, <laughs> Pro- they, they threw Prague out the window of the Czech Republic. Okay. It is now somewhere in Poland. <laughs> just checking. I wanted to be clear. <laughs> you know, you, you, the neighbors get drunk, you wake up, and you have Prague on your lawn. And it's just a pain in the ass to clean up, and it's the third time. And some CIA brony has to file a report. File a report. 
and you can see the disapproval in the eye of the drone. <laughs> but you think, you can't judge me, Brony. You can't yeah. judge me. You can't judge me, man. You don't know where I've been. Except, apparently now to Prague, but that's non-consensually. No, you, you are Prague. Let's not think oh, about this right. too hard. Yeah, no. We're going down the rabbit hole, and down that way, that way lies clown sex. And we've been there before, and it was odd. Honky. God damn it. <laughs> I was trying to avoid yeah. a horrible pun joke that somehow... Like, I avoided the word funny, specifically, to avoid horrible puns, and you just had to go in there. Yes, I did. You had to tromp in there yeah. with your big old shoes. <laughs> he went in there, and then 12 of his friends did. <laughs> All right, I'm going to read my stupid stories, too. <laughs> because I, I will point out the... anything that I could feel humiliated about in its contents. So. I, I will point out, though, that I, I do feel like Brony was a pretty good answer to this. All right. All right, here's, here's my, my take on it. I'm a goldfish murderer. Their vacant oh. eyes, the stupid slack-jawed expressions, going round and round in their tiny worlds. No purpose. No vision for the future. Impotent. Unable to act on a dream, even if their tiny minds were capable of having one. They are decorative, useless creatures. They feed, and they breed, and for some reason beyond me, they keep on swimming, even if they never get anywhere. Until I step in, that is. It's funny what you learn about people when sneaking into their homes. Go through an open window and you'll discover a tryst, I always say. Oh, the stories I could tell, the affairs, the plots, the pot, and everything in between. They have their secrets, and I have mine. And the contents of their fish tanks. <laughs> Whenever someone comments on the luster of my coat, I just stroke my whiskers and purr. <laughs> oh, oh, it's twisty at the end there. Oh, oh, see, and I was, I was about to say that I really liked how you, you started it and you didn't bury the lead. I am a goldfish murderer. <laughs> I, I actually, I mean, like, that's like the cat thing works and it's a good twist, but I think it's better if it's just a dude. <laughs> <laughs> it is certainly a lot weirder if it <laughs> yeah. is a guy who goes <laughs> into people's into... houses and Kills murders their goldfish. Their goldfish. Uh, you're you're <laughs> like... right. Just sneaks in. I should have just left it alone. I, yeah. I, mean, I, I like clipped it at and the contents of their fish tank yeah. and just walked <laughs> away. Yeah, less is I, more. I, I like I like the, the cat twist, but I have to admit, like the the desperate idea for next season's Dexter villain and it turns out the goldfish murderer that is amazing and and like as bizarre as something Corey and I would come up with I take it you didn't see season 6 no I have not actually seen any of Dexter okay yeah I'm joking there's no goldfish murderer <laughs> thank god some of them are just that bad uh, close to as bad though so I've heard John Lithgow was amazing. He was terrifying. Yeah, there there are some good ones. Uh, Ray Stevenson did a great job too. But yeah, and the contents of their fish bowls 
is such a perfect little sting at the end that it's that yeah. I should have yep. just left it alone. That's all right. Originally, when I was imagining it, it was just a guy, and then I was like, no, that's just really lame. That, so I was no, like, well, no, it it's he's got the twist. dumbest secret. That's true. That he's is d- a pretty. But dumb at the same secret. time, like mine is 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 dumb but sweet. Yours is dumb. And weird. <laughs> this guy made and me awesome. to seek help. Like, and, well, and what's funny is... He needs to seek help? No, he sees too much kelp. <laughs> he sees um, seek help. As does your hero, when, apparently. When you first mentioned when people comment on my lustrous coat, I, I didn't get... I didn't think of the cat thing. I thought... My God, how many goldfish does it take to make a coat? <laughs> it's like Cruella DeVille. Or, yeah. See my vest, see my vest, made from real gorilla chest. Who's that from? Uh, Simpsons, I think, right? That was, that was Simpsons. Yeah, Mr. Burns. Oh, man, that's great. See my loafers, former gophers. <laughs> uh, we have FXX. Which might as well just be named the We Have Nothing to Put on the Air, Why Don't We Put on the Simpsons Network, mm-hmm. formerly known as Fox. No, yeah. FXX is FX's new network that mm-hmm. to inaugurate, they bought the rights to show every Simpsons episode. Right, I heard about that. And so for the first 13 days, that's what they did. Mm-hmm. So we've seen a lot of Simpsons, and now they, they play... Uh, huge Simpson marathons five days a week. That's pretty awesome. Huh. But, uh... <laughs> coat. Coat made of goldfish. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> My lustrous coat. I think your secret would be out then. <laughs> what? What is that? Goldfish. Oh, where? on a related... On a related note, do you know where my goldfish is? <laughs> it's around here no. somewhere. No, I got no this at the mall. Yeah. yeah. It's all the rage. Next to a thong made of iguana. It was an iguana thong. Ugh. Was that all an right. attempt at a <laughs> Yes, am it was I an attempt at a... It? it was an attempt at an iguanodon pun after two beers. Oh. Whoa. 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 You, you were going dinosaur on this one? Wow. Yeah, missed that. Okay, so that one didn't land. A for <laughs> no. effort, though. That one got beached. You know, ooh. Beached. That's a... <laughs> Are you back to the fish? Or were you doing an iguanodon thing because they were kind of aquatic? I'll leave that to you to decide. No, no, no. I, I think it was the fish, and now you're trying to be smart. <laughs> am I? Yes, I am. It's true. <laughs> All right. So at this point... <laughs> I even... Haven't the beers had so there? Haven't. Hold on. Can we can we diagram that sentence? You may not. The beers had. You may not diagram that sentence. All right, Yoda. Off the table. Haven't the beers I had? Alcoholic I might be. Hands they shake. Eyes they droop. (laughs) Sentence syntax. Stranger. (laughs) Corrected. <laughs> but if you got Yoda drunk, he would talk like a regular person. Regular normal. With an English accent. Yes. 
Oh, goodness, my dear friend, what delightful liquors this bar has. I must be drunk. You all seem to know what I'm saying. Yes, Yoda. Just like that. This is actually how I talk. I just talk the other way to be a dick. (laughs) To seem inscrutable. To seem inscrutable. It makes me seem wise. Because I've always been terrified of scrutating. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I don't like I that was, word. I, don't... I was, I was scrutated as a child, and I, I vowed never again to be scrutable. <laughs> oh, jeez. Let's let's just end it now. Let's put a quirk in this one because it is dying on the loom of life. On the shut loom. Up. <laughs> shut up! Shut up! Shut up! I'm tired. Right, right next to all the fruit. <laughs> Freaking you. So we're wrapping this around to underwear. Awesome. The end. All right, Matt, where can we find more of your work? You can find my work at the occasionally read by my father and his twin sister web fiction Border Kansas at www.border-ks.com. And you can find more of my work at leylinescomic.com. If you have enjoyed this bizarre romp into fish murder and puns of horrible and dubious quality and you'd like to support that effort to have more of those things please go to patreon.com slash mocopress and become a supporter of our work yes because if you really liked all of those bad puns you need to be on a list somewhere Music for this episode was created by Reasoner. You can find more of his work at reasoner.newgrounds.com. <laughs>